Welcome to Women Make Science Fiction. I'm Amy Chambers. And I'm Lyle Skeens. And we're your hosts until they replace us with robots. <laughs> or men. Which I really hope that they, whoever they is that we're referring to there, I hope that doesn't happen. I would prefer that. That would be best. Um, so today we wanted to look at some of the films that we've been watching recently and also think about how they um, connect in terms of their themes, in terms of the ideas um, and approach that they take. Um, we noted when we were putting together the original list of um, texts to have a look at that there were quite a few women created science fiction texts that focused on and looked at the idea of water and nature um, and made connections between science and nature, science and the stories of the sea. Um, and that obviously came to um, more of a clear point when we watched Sea Fever uh, last week. And um, that was part of a screaming, screaming? <laughs> that was part of a screening um, for the British Society for the History of Sciences Global History um, Science Festival. And I've totally got all the words for that in the wrong order, but We'll put it in the notes uh, where we did a um, live stream of Sea Fever um, with a group of historians and science communication uh, scholars thinking about sort of the ways that the science connected with Sea Fever. Um, And I think what came out of that was an interesting dialogue between science and science fiction uh, with myth within that particular nautical space. I also think it was interesting because... It was, I mean, that's a lot of history of science people. Were there a lot of scientists on the stream? Were there a lot of, like, oceanographers and biologists? and? We had a couple. Um, A lot of historians of science tend to have science backgrounds. I'm an unusual fish in the sense that I come from a very specifically arts, entertainment, science, entertainment, um media history background um, whereas a lot of my colleagues in the history of science will have done an undergraduate in science a science subject um, and have come into the history of science later um, as a postgraduate that makes sense it was just I just enjoyed the conversation about the don't lick the science conversation in which it was why are you touching the goo and I was like uh, Fisher people and yeah obviously nobody's going to be precious about goo or stick or anything like that where you'll just stick your hands in something It's you're in guts and blood and muck all day what's the big deal yeah <laughs> they was just was like fun. why would you touch that it's coming out of a hole in a boat that's not going to be good I'm like but obviously <laughs> your first instinct is to block the hole or you know figure it out and I mean, if you've been there, if you've been doing what you're doing for decades, you've touched lots of gross things and it's never (laughs) been an alien thing that invades you and infects you. No, it's not your first thought, unless you're watching a science fiction movie that I've picked, (laughs) in which case everyone's waiting for some horrible infection. Um, Oh, good. You've picked another quarantine movie. (laughs) (laughs) Enough of my... um, distractions uh so we're specifically talking about what sea fever evolution and deep impact today yes uh but also a bit of tank girl welcome to the terror dome and and some other references to things that as as we can't avoid getting onto them talking about water and nature and this interesting juxtaposition of of myth and science that happens when we're on the ocean because i think a lot of my thoughts about evolution came from the closing shot where the nurse and the little boy emerge from the water in this after this sort of awkward sort of aqua lung sort of sequence where she breathes for him underwater and then they emerge from this sort of very ethereal heavenly space into the stark reality of the city and you get this this juxtaposition in that closing moment of the stillness and tranquility of the water and that sort of connection that they have and then this city in the background and I thought that that was a really interesting way that that particular film 
chose to end that, again that just juxtaposition between what the water can represent and also what it does in the narrative of science fiction i think there was that particular sequence for me was very womb like it's this you know the water as the water of the womb and she's breathing for him and he's he's deeply connected to her and and i know that in your review you sort of talked about it being almost erotic but it's more of this notion of she's she's carrying him on her abdomen she's breathing for him they're in this water that he's adapting to that that she's trying to transform him to adapt to i mean when you think about it it's this return to the womb and because in the womb obviously your mother breathes for you anyway she's the one converting um air to oxygen and and giving you all of the nutrients that you need and you have to adapt you have to eventually grow these lungs we don't grow lungs immediately in fact lungs are one of the last things to develop uh and so you know you have to have lungs before you can be born and breathe air which is actually kind of toxic so to be honest that being in the water and, and breathing there is a there's some comment there about it being more natural and more motherlike yeah. than because this is sort of the air. evolution idea generally in the film in the sense that evolution is this uh, development of humanity develop and it's a very human-centered idea of evolution um but i think ultimately in that film it's about returning to the water and seeing the water again as this purer natural form um and yes we've ruined the atmosphere and we're in the period of the Anthropocene. Um, but a return to the water, a return to that nature of not relying on air, I guess, <laughs> um, is part of this that narrative. And it was sort of that return to, it's almost like a de-evolution, de but not, it's cyclical in terms of returning back to yeah, the water, cause... taking what we know back into the water rather than emerging from it. Because in terms of, of speciation and things like that, there's no such thing as de-evolution, considering that evolution is simply change. And so yes. all change is evolution. And even if we did develop girls again, it would still be evolution. Um, but anyway, that's a soapbox that I can very easily get onto. Evolution is not about <laughs> aiming toward some top of the pyramid top of the hierarchy intelligence or something we are just as well evolved as nematodes yeah we had these discussions when i was writing about planet of the apes for my thesis and for later articles is that the narratives around evolution especially in american frame which planet of the apes obviously is an american film made in a very volatile period in american history you get discussions around evolution and although it comes from the Swiftian novel where he's not talking about evolution and devolution, uh, it becomes the core of that particular narrative and it is a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation of the theory of evolution um, and the idea that it is a race to the top rather than a process of change and development. Um, and this idea of the apes raising in the evolutionary chain and it, the, 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 that's the sort of narratives and ideas that came with that particular film when they were promoting it and also in the reviews. So it's interesting to see how that theme of evolution and its connection in, in the case of evolution, the film, to the water, that return. And, and interestingly as well, the closing sequence of Planet of the Apes is, is by the water. It's this sort of lapping natural sound that just sort of encroaches in this moment of realisation. And I think water appears a lot in science fiction in, in terms of being metaphorical as well as making a link to our past as well. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of things that you can use water for, right? You can you know we've talked about in evolution as this is as womb-like this this very natural uh home-like space comforting right we you know if you're in a a tank or you're in in a hot tub or you're in the ocean this nice warm buoyant uh water but 
and and we see it we saw it too in welcome to the terror dome right where they emerge from the sea and they go back to the sea and it is this sort of historical uh origin place like going home somehow but it becomes part of that igbo myth as well of of sort of uh the water as a space of safety and release even though it's also the place where they are transported from home to this new racist problematic imperial reality there's this site i mean and in welcome to the terror dome there's that that speech about it no it's not welcome to the terror dome <laughs> it's the good place <laughs> Oh, brilliant. I so often are those two combined. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's... Okay, so to be completely distracted from the topic of the movies that we're actually discussing, um, you've seen The Good Place, yeah? Yes. Uh, all I'd the love way through. The Good Place. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Cool. Okay, so I'm not giving you any spoilers. So spoilers no, no, for no, everybody no. else who hasn't seen The Good Place, which, by the way, why haven't you? And um, deal with it, because I'm going to give some spoilers right now. So in the very last episode, when uh, Chidi decides that he's he's done with the afterlife and he wants the real death, he describes to her, think of it like a wave. And it just, it ebbs oh, yeah. and flows and it comes and goes and, um, you know, there's been one wave here and now that wave is going back out again. And it's this lovely natural uh, explanation of the, that cyclical night notion of death and rebirth and um, that warmth, that soothing. And I think there's a soothing quality to that, the ebb and flow. I mean, it's why we like that as uh, waves as white noise and things like that, because it's moderately predictable. It's soothing. It's it's what has gone will come again. What has come will go away again. And that is the core of so much of our philosophy and and life and religion and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's the, the water as symbolic of that process i mean in in christian baptism the idea of the water is something that purifies and washes away sin and gives you that sort of new life that new start um especially if it's done at an adult level where you you've actually got a sense of your own experiences and i think that fits into the a lot of the uses of water is this idea of, of a new life of rebirth um of of change um, so there being the childbirth narrative and evolution is about the rebirth of a species, the rebirth um, of life in a way that is distinguished from the patriarchal system. So there's a feminist element to evolution as well, but that removal of adult men and an adult male structure uh, where the boys are there, but they take on the role of the childbearer. And it's just sort of that flip of all those sort of particular narratives. And a lot of that is around water imagery, but also literally enacted in water. You get a water birth scene where the baby fish mouth appears out of the <laughs> water when he gives birth. And it just sort of is this sort of alien and yet filial's natural at the same time you get that contrast between this very constructed clinical space and that this sort of natural um process and i think you get a lot again of that tension between the natural and the human or the constructed in sea fever as well this contrast between stories of of sea nymphs and fairy tales um and the wonder of the sea and a shipping boat, which are designed to be practical and functional, not pretty sort of vessels for pleasure. They are vessels for for produce and and function and survival. Um, yeah. And you get this sort of contrast between those two throughout Sea Fever, between the natural and the unnatural, between what is dangerous and unknown and what is comforting although there's very little comfort in Yasser Hardiman's um sea fever 
Well, yeah, but I was just about to say that even though we, we you know, Sea Fever is marketed as a horror movie and it ostensibly is this, you know, a monster attacks a fishing boat and we could, we could see it in that light. It could be a Jaws. It could be, you know, that sort of thing. But I think the twist on it, particularly with the uh, main character being a woman scientist, is that it actually, I think, reflects a lot of evolution's theme of the water as birthplace and the sea as um, cradling life. Because even though she's watched this creature and it's we're never quite sure what it is it's a it's enormous and it has has these squid like tentacles or barnacles and it's all this one enormous creature and it's both attacking them in a macro scale in that it it catches the boat and holds it still but also on a micro scale in that its larvae are infecting the humans as hosts uh, and killing them once it emerges so there's that horror element but she recognizes this is a life form we're not supposed to kill it we invaded its space and yeah. it's it's worthwhile for that why are we superior to it that we should kill it you know they they were very specific about noting that they were out of their fishing lanes they had diverted illegally and invaded some other space that wasn't theirs and so i love that final scene where actually you know you see her as a self-sacrifice she's not going to take her infected self back to civilization where it can infect more people but not only does she not just kill herself she and doesn't just jump off the boat and drown she actively returns to the creature so it's like she's yeah. carrying its children back to it yeah i think that that choice to have a woman scientist is is interesting in that space because it it pulls in lots of narratives around women and nature and science um She's a bioscientist, she's a marine scientist. A lot of women scientists on screen tend to come from the biosciences, so she fits into that. But within this frame, she isn't the... She doesn't take on any sort of mother role. If anything, she is detached and struggles with that more social human side of the biosciences. Um, she's introduced by refusing birthday cake. What? Um, <laughs> Who does that? I was like, she might not be cake. human. Cake. <laughs> is it cake? Um, it just cake. Um, Everything so, is cake. We've learned that. This week. Ah. Um, and <laughs> the fact that she has this detachment from her work colleagues, um, from the lab, and then her research is individual and solo, but in order for her to conduct it, she has to work with and be on a research ship where she can't be alone because of the nature of those types of vessels, which are 24 hour vessels. They don't, they sleep in small shifts. They have um, cycles, rotations and, and very strict sort of um, routine for those particular spaces which I feel she understands, but at the same time, the fact that it has to be with other humans rather than her specimens is Yeah, it's definitely a hardship for her. And she winds up spending half the, the time out on the deck in the cold and the wet just to find her own little pocket where she can be by herself. And it's not until uh, later when things start happening that she actually shares a meal with everyone. Like, yeah, she's... Oh, how dare you, you know, invade my personal space. So so it's, I love the characterization there because she's neither uh, woman, women, not, none of the three women on the boat are very motherly at all. In fact, it's the men who are far more uh, maternal than, you know, the men nurse one another. Uh, you don't really see the women nursing, uh, especially once once people start falling ill. It's the men who take care of each other. Uh, we only see really but I think one... only after she says I'm not your mother and I'm not doing that that's not just because I'm a a, a scientist it doesn't mean that I'm a nurse 
or exactly. a doctor. I'm not going to take on that caring role. I'm interested in the thing, not the people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she does lay that out there. But but I think given the, the other women on the boat, they're like, well, okay. Um, you know, and <laughs> and the of all of them, the only one who's a mother has lost her child. I th- we think, right? We think that the, it's the ship not very captain... Clear. It's not super clear as to whether they've lost their child, but it, it seems so. So, so yeah, it's it's very interesting, that, that juxtaposition. And, and I love also the, the mythology. And I think a fishing boat is sort of a perfect place for mythology and science to come together. Because if we're talking ocean science and climatology and meteorology and astrology um not astrology astronomy good job lyle um (laughs) nobody cares about astrology um but i (gasps) threw a bunch of ologies in there but uh you know our sailors are some are basically our first scientists because when you're out there on the ocean if you don't understand these things and you you can't navigate you can't tell when a storm's coming you don't know where the fish are you don't know where you're going if you don't put some sort of science on it so i think in in a lot of the the mythological stories yeah we we like to dismiss them as stories but we forget that that's our original way as a species to convey information so we tell stories to say you know there be dragons that's dangerous water we don't know what's there don't go there uh, you know, there's there's storms or, you know, we still talk about the Bermuda Triangle. The Bermuda Triangle does not have more disappearances than any other particular, you know, space in the ocean. In fact, there are others that are worse. But we tell stories about these things if it's particular dangerous waters or particular elements so that, uh, you know, it's our way of passing on that information. So... In this case, in a lot of ways, I don't see the mythology or the the lovely folk tales as distinctly different from science. It's just communicating it in a different way. In a different way. Because uh, there's that sequence with um, Siobhan, played by Hermione Caulfield, and Freya, played by Connie Nielsen, where they look at the plankton. And I can't remember the bioluminescent. Uh, no, not bioluminescent. That is right. Yeah, it's bioluminescent. Um, the the plankton that they can see on the water um, that mm-hmm. makes it look uh, like it's lighting up. And where Siobhan sees the beauty of science, of um, this sort of lighting of the waves through a very sort of minuscule creature that sort of relates to her life and her experiences of the sea, Freya connects it to um, a Irish myth um, of Neve, of the sort of um, woman of the sea, who um, is also the namesake of that particular um, boat. So it, it's embracing the the mystery, it's embracing the myth. Um, yeah, I, I just, I think that, that that's a beautiful short sequence that looks at them. I think that particular myth ties the whole movie together because Neve is not just yeah. the name of the boat. It's the name of her daughter. Uh, the boat is named after their child who we yeah. don't know if, if she still exists or not. And also that particular tale ties into the eventual creature that kills them all essentially, except for Freya and the one dude um, who is Dougie a father. Scott. Yes. And uh, so, but that creature also has that resemblance of glowing hair, right? With the tentacles that are bioluminescent. Her name is the golden headed Neve or the golden haired Neve. Yeah. Uh, Neve Sinor. I don't know if that's how I pronounce that, but I will put it in there. Kinar. They say it once. It's it's Neve Kinar is kind of how they said it. Because um, at one ah, point, he, okay. when Freya goes to leave, when she pulls out the boat, and he says, what about the Neve Canar? Uh, and she says, it's just a boat. So they do say it. <laughs> so we get okay. pronunciation. Um, I saw that the second time I watched it, because we left Paul out of the first viewing. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> and he was sad. But as a story, <laughs> it's, it's a sort of uh, 
woman that comes from the sea who comes to uh, Ireland as it was and uh, lives with another mythical character called Oshan um, about her as the water, as the sea, as dangerous and beautiful um, and him as this sort of representation of, of the land and, and narratives around love as well as separation as well and there's sort of lots of interesting parts to that particular um story and there are different versions um of the story of of neve which is why i'm struggling to sort of explain it because there are there are different strands of the story um that come through um she comes and she falls in love with a human called often and they go to live in her um domain in the land of youth they have a son and a daughter together um, after more than 300 years of living together, Neve reluctantly allows um, Oshin to visit Ireland, um, but he's not allowed to touch the ground. He must stay um, on the sea. And, and, and as soon as he uh, touches the land of, of Ireland, t- touches the land, ret- goes away from the sea, he becomes old um, and he's not allowed to see Neve again. So there's this sort of distinction between the fruitfulness and mythic quality of the sea versus the reality and harshness perhaps of the lands that comes through that particular myth. So there's sort of, um, but there are different versions and I'm sure that someone can correct us on, on what is the name central narrative of, of the Neve mythology, but. Well, I also think there's a link there to explaining, explaining men who never return from the sea. Right. So yes, yeah. we're inevitably going to lose sailors and they're never going yeah. to return. And what better way to explain, you know, it's sure they drowned, their ship went down and, and we can never, sometimes we can never, you know, if we, I, I live on Anglesey, right in North Wales. And I think there are something like around this tiny Island all by itself, there's something like two or 300 shipwrecks just around the Island. So imagine how many, how many thousands there are in the ocean that we just never find again. And yeah. so we, we're nothing if not creative and we will come up with ways to explain why they don't return or why they return decades later or, uh, you know, why they wash up decades later or, or things like that. And, and I do. The, the mer- like the mermaid is a mythic a sort of sea character of the, of the woman of the sea, the siren who lures men to the rocks, that lures men to their death. And there is, again, the sea as as female and as woman. Um, and that danger is inherently something that we attach to the, or we have um, traditionally attached to the female and the female body. I can feel it in my waters is one of my mum's favourite phrases. If she thinks something's wrong, there's this idea of being able to sense it and it, it's something that is woman it's the breaking of the I've, water it's the i've been watching Downton abbey and at some point the cook says i can feel it in my waters and all i could think was does she need to pee <laughs> that explains it a little bit more and i don't i'm also not sure if it's a particularly northern it phrase be. because because Downton abbey is set in the area that I grew up and where my family are from. So I don't know if that sort of like is a Northeast phrase, but we say it a lot, you know, I can feel it's going to be, this is going to go wrong. I can feel it in my waters and it's always in my waters. Um, It just sort of like that connection um, and that sea Mm. narrative as well. And it's interesting that she, that um, Yasa Hardiman chooses to use uh, the Neve legend as part of that structuring device um, and to use it also as as that space where myth and science are both one and in contrast to each other because it's explaining and understanding the natural world of understanding it but through different ways of storytelling science is a form of storytelling and good science communication takes the stories, the ideas of science and makes them easier to communicate. And that's essentially what fairy tales do in this way is it takes the narratives of the sea and our feelings and responses to that and turns it into something that's easier to 
follow and understand why people go missing, why the sea has this sort of complex space um, within human history um, as well. And there's also the notion of it as this frontier because we're still, you know, I don't know what the figures are. I'm sure Sam could tell us uh, exactly, but there's the vast amount of, of undersea is not explored. We don't know what's there. I mean, how long ago did Jules Verne tell us, you know, build this story 20,000 leagues under the sea about a giant squid. And it wasn't until the nineties that we actually like, ha ha, there are these giant squid, just like Jules said, <laughs> you know, back in the, you know, that we got a picture of one. And then it was a decade later, I think that we actually had a live one. And so there's so much that we just don't know is down there. Don't know, you know, and it, it gives rise to this myth of Atlantis that, the the sea can swallow things up it can swallow things whole and we still can't re- we still don't really have the technology to explore that not to the sort of like extent that we can explore land or we can even explore outer space um so 1960s historically there's uh, again tensions between different frontiers that need to be um explored and you have the final frontier which is obviously a, a star trek reference but it's very much representative of that period um, in American history in terms of exploring the frontier of space. Uh, But also there was definite interest from Kennedy about exploring the ocean frontier, Um, both Sam Robinson and um, Helen Rosrodowski have looked at the idea of um, the ocean frontier of the, the futures we can imagine within the space of um, the ocean. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke uh, was a avid, um, not a submariner, that's the wrong word. Um, snorkeler is also wrong. Diver. Thank you. <laughs> like, like they like do actions now. Yeah, so he was a diver, and there I've been to his archives, which are held at the Space Museum. Um, at Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C. And you think about, I hear Clark and I think 2001 A Space Odyssey and space and the frontiers of space, where as a lot of his archival materials are about his interest in um, the ocean and exploring that space and his connection to that space and his desire to return back to the ocean in his day-to-day life in terms of how long he wanted to be away from the coast, from the ocean. Um, and he has written about that imagined space of the ocean of, of somewhere that, that humanity will return to. Um, and it so it, it's there in, in literary fiction as well. It's not simply this dangerous unknown space, but also potentially somewhere we will return to. I loved all of the... Sorry, I'm just going to jump into my next point. <laughs> no lie. Go for it. Um, <laughs> I was, <laughs> there was a load of like fun theories around Westworld and when they were trying to work out when we were trying to work out in the first series where Westworld was whether it was a planet whether it was a um, land-based theme park whether it was under the water and there were some really interesting sort of fan theories around this idea of Westworld being a underwater dome Um, that it was so separate from the rest of the world and of 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 reality um and we're still not i'm still not 100 percent where westworld is in westworld because um they visited it in the most recent series and to get there he has to go on a fishing boat so again there's this, this connection with the water i find really um interesting in terms of thinking about where our human futures lie Obviously, we just convert Australia. I mean, we don't need it for anything else, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so just whack it there. That's fine. (laughs) Uh, No, it's that again. That tension with the the sea of it feeling feeling really local and knowable. It's part of our childhood. It's part of our. I mean, the, the British narrative of the seaside as a space of escape and holiday. 
and you, I do like to be beside the seaside, you go to the sea for rest. But at the same time, it's unknowable and distant and an alien. Um, so you get this tension between it feeling local and knowable as this sort of entertainment space and yet totally alien and dangerous and uh, unknowable. It becomes a frontier, a future space. Entering into that is the cyclical nature, the the tides and the waves and the cycles, and yet the unpredictability of storms and tsunamis and, you know, underwater earthquakes that lead to different things. And, and so it's always got this dichotomous nature, which perhaps being ungenerous to men is why they see it as female. <laughs> yeah uh, yeah yes something to be controlled and contained and but at the same time there's whole sections that they will never really understand they will never they can get to the bottom of the mariana trench but they never fully have a sense of what what is in the ocean they find new creatures and layers of science and uh, animals that they had not known of it, it is this sort of ongoing frontier even though it's contained it, it just is beyond currently full human exploration the fact that you can lose whole ships and you can lose people oh, yeah. an enormous black box you can lose entire civilizations into it right you you not just ships but it can you know i think that's I mean, if we're getting into complete myth, why why else do you place Themyscira, which is Wonder Woman's island full of Amazon women, in the middle of the ocean? Because it's a place, it's an island that was there, and then the next time you go, it's not there. It's veiled. You can't find it again. Um, yeah, you No, know, we're not going to place a, a c- civilization of women in a knowable place. We're going to place it in the middle <laughs> of the ocean because the ocean is just this big black box for them. And sometimes you can get something out of it that's useful, but it's always going to be dangerous. It's always going to be unpredictable. Every day is, is chance and, and who knows what's going to happen. You know, I mean, the fact that in... In the 21st century, we can lose an entire airplane and have no idea. It's just gone. Um, And eventually some pieces washed up in Madagascar. And that's it. We don't know where everything else is, is sort of quintessential ocean mythology. Because obviously we've both recently watched, or not obvious to people listening, but to us it's obvious, that we've both recently watched the women-directed action fantasy Old Guard and the fact that Mm. the the central, potentially the central female couple, the original gods or the first god and the second one, however we're interpreting Old Guard, um, she, as a witch, gets put into a watery coffin and dumped in the sea and they potentially the Charlize Theron character is eternal potentially immortal that was what I was looking for yeah and immortal she still can't find this other person who has lived as long as her always in the knowledge and the background of her mind and it it comes up interestingly in flashes in the film um of this woman dying and then being reborn as this immortal character and then going through the death cycle um, of drowning and accepting her death and dying and coming back. And just the idea that that would have happened for millennia is just, well, hundreds of years in her her case because it's witch trials, isn't it? This idea that that has constantly been in the mind of that particular female character, that there is someone that she could, she wants to save that, is part of her life and her experience who is always going to be lost under the water. Or is she? (laughs) Much like Captain America, she is going to re-emerge. And it'll then be the sea and madness, water. How how would you survive that particular narrative? How would it affect you? Because I always felt that when they brought back in... um, 
Torchwood, uh, Jack Harkness is buried and, and, and lives forever. And you have all these narratives of sort of rebirth and, and reemergence. His burial is not in, in the sea, but this idea of constantly coming back to life and dying again and being sort of buried alive um, is sort of terrifying. Um, but the idea of doing it in water, I have nightmares about drowning. I, that's my sort of one that freaks me out. Um, I had a nightmare so... last night about having to go to a public restroom in which no one would wear masks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, also wear your mask. Um, I do enjoy that we've had several movies that link into um, the quarantine. So with Sea Fever, one of the, the sort of narratives that I thought was really interesting was to do with this idea of quarantining, of going back in, in sort of history of science fiction as well, of women in science fiction going, uh, he might be infected. I think we should follow the uh, intergalactic... Uh, Quarantine protocols, says Ripley. No, we um, have to get and, you know, back because I I want to. I'm a man. I can do what I want. Yeah. So you get that sort of same narrative. I think it's interesting as a sort of a recurrent narrative in, in women in science fiction of going, well, maybe we should follow the rules here. And um, in fact, that individualistic, I don't follow no rules lady uh, attitude is actually their demise. Which, hilariously, in my household is not the case. My husband is the rule follower and will follow the rules Ditto. regardless of whether they make sense. And I'm over but that here is the going, rules. hey, lick the science. <laughs> let's, let's do the thing. Oh, it tastes like sherbet. I just... just... <laughs> Tra-la-la. <laughs> Ask permission later. But... I thought that that sort of connection between sea fever and alien was really interesting because it had lots of references throughout it. And it was interesting to see on the live tweet where we actually had quite a few people responding to it, which reference points people drew upon. So there was lots of like, we're going to need a bigger boat references, especially when you get the sort of like overhead shots where you get some sense of how big the parasite creature mm-hmm. is. Um. We also got people referring to Alien for me. That that was automatically the one that came up uh, where it's that narrative of contagion and quarantine. And nobody listens to the smart woman and everybody dies. Listen to the woman. Um, <laughs> and the thing as well is this sort of classic science fiction narrative that has been repeated by different uh, generations. Um, I love the original thing uh, where they uncover an alien creature under the ice and work out that it's basically a biomass and it's basically a giant evil vegetable um, and they have to set fire to it. I love that. (laughs) But the argument is that obviously uh, the remake in the 70s is much better. And as much as I love Donald Sutherland, I'm still a big fan of the original thing. But it's this idea of the unknown creature that emerges from this natural space that we think we know but we don't really. I think that's the, the story of humanity, though. I mean, we're kind of arrogant a holes when you when you come when it comes right down to it. So we haven't. I've just confused two films: uh, the Thing and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's the remake yes. of the Invasion of the Body Snatchers that's got um, Donald Sutherland in it. Um, but again, the thing is very parasitic when it comes through in the 1970s. It's about it as parasites. So again, it's that changing narrative in terms of what we know about infection, what we know about contagion, what we know about the thing that we can't control. The coronavirus is this alien thing that is unknown and known at the same time. We sort of know what yeah. to do, but we don't have a full... Um, understanding of that particular creature. And I think even though obviously Sea Fever deserved a full cinematic opening, it comes out at a really important moment, a really apt mm-hmm. time. It, it and, and that's, I think, why we... I wanted to promote it. That's part of this project is promoting women filmmakers, but this particular film is really relevant to our present moment. 
And yes, it's important to find out what we're fighting, but also we can already put in place actions and measures to stop it from spreading any further or attempt to do that. And ignoring the problem will not make it go away. I'd love to see a sequel where they see what actually happens to Freya. Like, she infects all of Ireland and everybody dies because because <laughs> she was very, very bad. But, yeah. So, we haven't talked a lot about sea fever, which was... Not sea fever. We've talked a ton about sea fever. About Deep Impact, which is one of the films of the current cycle that we have watched. Um... I, of course, I remember it when it first came out, uh, and all I really remember is that sort of iconic, everybody's, the, the highway is a parking lot, everybody stands outside their cars and watches the, this comet come down. And I, I realize now, what, you know, at the time Armageddon came out at the same time, and it was much more, it was terrible in terms of science and what would actually happen, and it was very silly. But it had a lot more characterization, and it was much more connected to characters. Deep Impact, I was starting to get pretty snoozerific, because it's pretty hard to care about all these characters when it really is just very plot-based. They try to drag in Taya Leone and her relationship with her father, but that's about it. And I don't... Did we have much water reference in, in Deep Impact, apart from... The power the of the water itself? at the end. Oh, um, yeah, that a giant tsunami wave was going to come and wipe out the East Coast. and Yeah, and the, the giant the tsunami the wave. Because there was, that wasn't in the budget. Yeah. Well, you get that, the, the sort of, like, shot of Tierra, uh, Tierra? No. Tierra, no. Whatever her name is. Um, with her father in the shadow of the wave, you get this sort of very, attempt, an attempt at an iconic moment in that film where... It's, it's about that relationship and then the crushing hopelessness of the wave. There's nothing that the, you can do to stop it. And it's obviously several years before um, the tsunami that um, hit on, was it Boxing? That was um, the day after Christmas or was it New Year's Indonesia, Day? Yeah. Um, it, that imagery is made up, but it, it becomes... All the, all the more relevant once we start to record and media mediate uh, that particular natural disaster. Um, but it takes on that sort of resonance almost retrospectively, um, the destruction caused by the wave. I think the fact that the two towers in New York are still standing and they seem to survive a tsunami and it, that, that I found really interesting that this sort of like... Um, landscape of New York as to what survives these natural disasters um, and and the two towers are there um, facing this tsunami and yet for a contemporary audience especially millennials who have very clear memories and, and of uh, the two towers attack of 9-11 it sort of changes that representation of New York as to what survives what doesn't human and natural because uh, the comet is a natural phenomena, it's that or an act of God, depending on how you put it. I'm sure an insurance company was like, "No, sorry, it was an act of God, and you <laughs> cannot <Monsieur>. have." <laughs> the water is an interesting part of it, but as we noted, it takes such a long time. The film is more about the coming disaster rather than the disaster itself, and I think it takes so long to get to the disaster that when it happens, you're like, "Ooh." Oh. oh, a disaster. <laughs> and then it's averted. Okay, good job, you. Um, yeah, it just didn't... The only one I connected to was, was Robert Duvall. And I'm always going to connect to Robert Duvall. I can't help it. <laughs> I, you know, he was the only... Like, I could have just had the five minutes of Robert Duvall screen time. And that could have been the whole movie for me. And I'd be like, that. Uh, that's it. I'm done. That's all I really need. Uh, but it's, you know, that has more to do with my you know experiences of the roles that he's played and that sort of thing um and he's just fantastic shout out to robert duvall <laughs> but yeah i mean i think deep impact is a case uh, again a little bit like tank girl where 
the fact that it's a big studio film really hamstrung the filmmakers uh, and made it sort of mediocre as opposed to something that, you know, could have been interesting to explore. Yeah. I mean, because what's interesting to explore in these sorts of disaster films is not the disaster. We get it. Everybody's going to die. What we want to see is how this affects human relationships. How do we, you know, we're back to Anna Anthropy's Queen and Queens in Love at the End of the World, which is in 10 seconds, the world's going to end. You're standing next to your lover. What do you do? And that's what's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Not, it doesn't even matter how it's going to end. Is it a comet? Is it, is it nuclear war? Is it whatever it is? Okay, that's there. But how are you going to spend it? What are you going to do when you know that, that, that it's coming, when you know that tsunami is coming? And I think that's where Deep Impact completely missed the mark, which is what mm-hmm. Armageddon got right. Armageddon got the science completely bass backwards, and it's <laughs> ridiculous, but it got those relationships, and that was yeah. what was interesting about it. Um as opposed to Deep Impact, where at the end of it, uh, meh? Is but it sold us, the, the film is sold through its spectacle, and yet that spectacular moment doesn't come till the end. Whereas I feel Armageddon was sold more on the people and the characters. Um, but I mean, if you put them uh, side by side, Deep Impact, Deep Impact did really well. Um, so we've talked about sort of the curse of the 2000s and women not making uh, science fiction much in yeah. that period um, and particular films that take down um, women's opportunities in mainstream Hollywood uh, where the gender becomes um, part of the discussion as to whether someone is a good or safe pair of hands i hate this idea of of looking for a safe pair of hands to look after a film um and that women are seen as as dangerous and erratic as um filmmakers um so it's i can't think of any other big disaster movies that are directed by women so mimi Lader directs deep impact her big um blockbuster she does it does, you know, it's incredibly successful. It makes three hundred and forty-nine million internationally, which in nineteen ninety-eight is is really good. It beats Armageddon on the opening weekend, uh, so head to head, and that, that opening weekend is that mark of of success for a film. Um, the discussions that we've had around Birds of Prey is not its longevity and its long-term success, but people go back to yes, but on its opening weekend. Um, Deep Impact doesn't have that, and yet um, Mimi Lader gets fridged. She is another woman who has one film that doesn't go as well, that doesn't um, make as much money as they had hoped, and she then gets fridged as a as a woman director for quite a long time. Um, goes yeah, into TV, we definitely works through don't that. get you know the this we talked about this last episode that Zack Snyder keeps getting brought back to direct disaster after disaster, not disaster film disaster after disaster. Uh, and yet if a woman has a film that is successful, but not as successful as one would have hoped, then she's out, which is infuriating. She, you know, there's a folly, there's a financial disaster, but, she, the movie that they consider to be a, a a disaster, actually does pretty well. So, we yeah. can't win for losing, is the no. message here. All right, so, so that's the the three films that we've we've watched since the last time we chatted: Sea Fever, Evolution, and Deep Impact. Um, and that's our, our Lady of the Lakes discussion. I, I rather enjoy that notion. But before we completely go away, I have to share a thing that has been happening on Twitter, which is science communication related. 
Have you seen the C. Elegans discourse that's happening on what we're calling Worm Twitter? Oh no, but I've seen a little <laughs> bit of it, but I haven't actually. I, I I've seen like a couple of tweets this morning, and I'm like, I will set that aside for later. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant! Tell so me what is happening. In one of those, you know, question things of of reply, um, you know, biologists, what is the most overrated animal in your mind? And it's just one right. of those ha ha funny tweets that goes around. So this scientist replied that uh, it was C. elegans. They wriggle forward. They wriggle backward. They F themselves. And that's about it. <laughs> and, of course, C. elegans is a nematode, a worm, that uh, is what's called a model organism. Uh, you may have worked with Drosophila or fruit flies, right? We use fruit flies as model organisms in the lab because they have a simple... A genetic framework, a straightforward chromosome. So we do lots of genetic experiments with with Drosophila. Well, they do the same thing with with nematodes. They're another model organism. Yeah, yeah. And apparently, he is the editor for a major journal, and a few scientists got so affronted that he would dare to make a joke about C. elegans that they claim that it is racism against worms. And these are microaggressions and people who work with these worms are being oppressed. And now they need to rethink whether they're submitting their journal papers to this journal because he made a joke about a worm. <laughs> and so worm Twitter has lost its mind. Yes, I see they're talking about it as locker room talk about... Uh, yeah. this particular animal and you're like it's banter around a worm and you're like what why are we talking about this <laughs> it's just... and the, of course the fact that you've got essentially these Karens who are equating a joke about a worm to racial yes. oppression and gender oppression and all of this is just it's it's good I like that the start, the, you're trying to find the... some reason that people are oppressing you this is ridiculous <laughs> The site that has done it is called Just the Zoo of Us. So um, I feel that they were not expecting to start a Twitter storm with what's the most overhyped animal, googly eyes. And I, um, it I just, love the like... in all of his responses, he's just like, what the fuck? <laughs> why? Why is this a thing? Why are you butthurt? That... And, and some scientists are like, well, but yeah, but that's why it's a good model organism. And he's just kind of pointing out that that's what it does but it's very simple and that's why you can ask questions about it and run experiments with it because it is simple <laughs> but oh my god worm twitter worm twitter lost its mind oh so, biologists man <laughs> that was super fun <laughs> that is it my afternoon with sorted our, uh... <laughs> oh Thanks, Science Twitter. Yes, <laughs> thanks, Science Twitter. That's that's super awesome. We needed that this week. <laughs> so, uh, on that final uh, point on worms and Science Twitter, uh, we're going to close up this episode. Um, hopefully, next episode we'll be joined by um, Casey Hefner, who is a specialist in women. Um, in science fiction fandoms and women um, as science communicators and those interested in the sciences through science fiction. Um, so we're going to be thinking about fandoms and how women engage with science fiction um, as well as creating science fiction. I'm totes in love with this topic, so I'm very excited for that next episode. Yes. Um, so um, if you do have any topics that you would like us to discuss in the future or things that you think connect to what we're covering in Women Make Science Fiction, please comment, send us a tweet, send us an email, um, let us know what you would like us to cover in future episodes. Because um, I'd quite like to mix in some themes um, alongside um, discussions of specific texts that we've looked at as part of the project. So we'll see you next time, unless they replace us with robots. Four men. <laughs>